Phil, and I just have to say, Phil, those are awesome boots. You should show the crowd your boots. Um, well, they're, they're there. Yeah. Yeah. Come up afterwards, you can see them. Yeah. Talk to Jimmy Murado, James Murado. They've been third generation boot makers. They've been making my boots for about 30 years, so that's where you go. Um, <clears throat> Thank you guys so much for giving me some time today. Uh, I thought I'd talk a little bit about some of the things that we're doing at IBM, but I'll, I'll start by telling you a, a little bit about me. Uh, I actually, uh, I came to IBM in 2010 because IBM bought my company. It was my third startup. I did startups for 30 years, three different startups over 30 years, and uh, all were in the business-to-business -business space. And over those uh, 30 years uh, has really is the story of my own uh, coming to understand at least some thoughts on, on how to build software that people love to use, desire to buy, and create successful companies. Uh, and really, the work that we're doing at IBM today is in some degrees kind of a culmination of, of, of that set of expertise that I'm gonna talk to you about. I came there in 2010, about a year and a half later, after I had been asked to run one of the subdivisions and had been bringing some of the things that I'm gonna to talk to you about today uh, to bear in this small group at IBM, which was 1,000 people. Uh, when I was asked to lead it, we had some 300 to $350 million of revenues in this business. Over an 18-month period, by using design thinking and by using some of the specific tactics that I'm gonna to talk to you about today, we took a portfolio of 45 products down to four. We increased the revenues of that group from 300 million or so to about 650 million in a market space that was growing at 10% a year. This was in boring middleware. It was called business process management. And so in January of 2012, shortly after our chairman, Jenny Rometty, took over, if I can get to that slide, hello? She made a statement. There's one key to our future growth. We were essentially needing to reorient our company, just as Jason just talked about. And that is the client experience. And we had to take a good hard look at the outcomes that we were generating at the time for our clients. And we had some problems. We had a lack of bold, desirable outcomes and we were not moving very fast at all. And we knew we had to get to a new target state where we delivered delightful experiences at pace and at scale in a sustainable fashion. And so we came up with our formula. If nothing else, when you leave here, <laughs> this conference, you're gonna have 50 or 60 different frameworks to, <laughs> to, to try to choose from. <laughs> well, this is our framework. It actually doesn't start with any particular philosophy. It says there's three things that you have to alter if you're gonna change your outcomes. I believe this very, very sincerely. Those three things are your people, the practices, how they behave, and where and how they work. If you don't change all three of those things, you will not get sustainable new outcomes. Wherever you come from, you have to get to a new place in these three areas. We just lost the screen, there we go. And so again, I'm not gonna go over this eye chart with you, but we did a gap analysis essentially of where we were in 2012 as a company, 
and where we felt like we needed to be. People plus practices plus places equals outcomes. The first area, and, and as documented when the New York Times took a look at our program last year, kind of the money quote out of that article, was in the past, at IBM we changed what we were working on, and now we're actually changing how we work. That's the fundamental thing. In the 20th century, process was fine. Process no longer works because process inherently instills some sort of a waterfall set of gates in your way. And the market and the world is moving too fast. We have to move to much more of a collaborative environment in how we do our work, how we make things. And that collaborative environment means we have to have different kinds of teams with different kinds of skills, different kinds of decision-making capabilities in order to move fast and to also get to the right outcome. And so we started looking first at our people. Everything we started doing is started focusing on teams. I don't believe in just educating a mass of people in design thinking. I don't really care about design thinking. To be honest, as a business person, I don't really care about design. That's not the end game. As somebody said earlier, the client experience is, in fact, your product, and that is your business value. And so the question is, how do we get to greater business value quickly, sustainably? Now, we did take a look at our teams. They were pretty traditional STEM teams. And the fact of the matter is, we've made the decision that design is probably the single most potent lever that we could pull to change the outcomes that those teams were generating. We came up with, that for us, a point of view on what the ratio of those teams should be. And again, in the same way that you might think about the specific features of your company, whatever they might be for you, I think very strongly that, that you should come up with a point of view. You ha we have to become more intentional about how we craft our teams. We all talk about diversity in teams, but very few of us actually intentionally choose what that diversity needs to look like. I'm going to talk more about diversity in just a second, but to us, diversity means diversity in all of its forms. Skills diversity, gender diversity, religious diversity, cognitive skills, disabilities diversity. All of these teams have to be intentionally put on our teams in order for them to get to the best results sustainably over time. And so we went out in our case, and we're a big company, and so we made a decision that we were going to go add about 1,500 designers to IBM over a five-year period. We're in the midst of that. We actually have 1,300 designers at IBM today, and we're still hiring. These are designers across all of these various design disciplines. But even as we've done that work, we have to realize that designers are a very small part of IBM. And to change the practices of our teams, we had to start thinking about this at an IBM scale, not just as design and designers. That's much too narrow of a lens. And so that's where we came to design thinking as a framework for how we do this. Now, for us, design thinking is actually a bedrock set of principles around which our teams are generating new outcomes. Those principles are very simple. There's three of them. And I thought I'd share the practices around those principles with you guys today. The first one is we have to reorient ourselves around a real focus on user outcomes. And this is every single individual at IBM. 
In the past, for example, we tactically made code reuse a higher order principle than user outcome. You shall reuse code, and oh, by the way, if the user experience is great, what a happy day. We had to reorient that middle model. The second thing is, is we had to rethink design thinking itself. I'm gonna talk about that a little bit more. But design thinking, if we're all honest with ourselves, was actually baked in a world from the 70s and 80s, codified in the 90s. It was baked in a world around physical products, and it was baked in a world where there was much more waterfall. We went out and we understood. <laughs> we empathized, and man, we would empathize for weeks or months, and then we would come in and gain insights from that, and then we would hand off to engineering and make. The world today is not like that. In a continuous delivery world, we had to rethink design thinking itself. And finally, it's built around diverse, empowered teams. And again, if we could go back to the slides here, that'd be great. Um, this notion of diversity, as I said before, is very important to us. Uh, and it started at the very beginning of this project it started with this notion of skills diversity and having multidisciplinary teams working together. But over the last year and a half, we've really been pushing on diversity in every one of its forms and capabilities. I talked earlier about uh, design thinking changing and design thinking being codified for uh, a more linear world. We spent a lot of time around, when we started doing this, uh, a lot of times we would insert this new desire onto our product teams. And the first thing that happened is we would have user researchers show up. And uh, thank you. Uh, the user researchers would show up and they'd say, wait a second, we've got to stop and understand of our, our users. And the actual engineering team that was building product all the time was very much in this loop. These products were in market. They were having to be delivered every single day. And we were moving, certainly in the early years of our program, rapidly moving to make our uh, core services all available on the cloud and all updated daily, if not hourly or by the minute, in a continuous delivery world. And so we had to reimagine not only the practices around which we practice design thinking, but also the visual language of design thinking itself. And so this, which we call the loop, really reflects the mindset that we're trying to establish in every one of our team members, this notion of observing, reflecting, and making. One of the things about observing is communicating to all of our people that we're not our users. This is kind of a hard concept, especially for somebody that's been building software for many, many years. And it's particularly hard in a company that's building B2B software and not business-to-consumer software because we are, in fact, not our users. Very few of the people building software for us are actually data center operators, are actually security analysts or CIA analysts or doctors, oncologists. And so we had to intentionally create a way to start understanding our users and the ecosystems that they lived in in a way that was scalable and sustainable. And so we do go out and do quite a bit of qualitative, generative research in the real world, but we also ask our teams to have what we call sponsor users. And so we've created a program where our teams actually can go out and are encouraged not only to get access to the actual users of their product or service, but we actually measure the teams on how many sponsor users they have. 
A sponsor user is somebody out in the world who is actually using the solution, and we embed them with our team from the get-go. These are not beta customers. These are people that are actively involved in, you know, at the very beginning of a process, maybe actively involved in writing and vetting the marketing requirements document. They're actively attending daily stand-ups if they want to. Sponsor users are people from outside of IBM, at clients, using our software, using that particular tool, and they commit to give us four to 10 hours a week of their time to actually help us make the tooling that they're using better. It's a very scalable, very sustainable way to make sure that we're actually building things that a user will stand up and say, if you guys build that, if you deliver it at this quality, I want to use it. I found in my career, even at startups, that uh, you know, a million people had great ideas. We need to go do this. And I would always ask my team, go find one person in the world that'll give you five hours a week to help you do that. And if you do that, I'll fund what you think. And finding that first person from outside the company that will actually make that investment is oftentimes very hard. And it's the easiest way to vet an idea and the cheapest way to fail and learn that I've ever found. The second thing that I've found is that this two pizza notion is a crock. Not just at IBM. My company that got bought by IBM had 200 people in it. And I will tell you that when you actually start thinking about the team that is reflecting the client's experience, you have to include marketing and legal and finance. It just grows very quickly. Now at IBM, it grows even bigger, but I will tell you that even, even at most startups, this notion of having eight or 10 people, and it's just the makers that are the people that are relevant to delivering a client experience is simply wrong. And so we had to create a mechanism, a safe place, where for the purpose of critiquing and gaining alignment around the work, we had to create something that disrespected the corporate hierarchy and the silos that different functions created. We call those playbacks. And when a team calls a playback, it's, it's built after, designed after a design charrette, when a team offers, uh, comes up with a playback, for that moment in time, the team or the individual brings the work product and the criticism of the work product, in a classical sense, comes from everybody. It's about the work, it's not personal, and everybody in the playback is equal for that period of time. Just because you are a general manager or a senior vice president or whomever you might be, doesn't mean that your opinion about the work is more important than the opinion of others. As we start thinking about making, we had to teach ourselves again how to make, how to make like children, if you will. We have to start with simple, cheap artifacts. We have to create 370,000 people who are comfortable sketching. And then we begin to bring in the experts that start working at more medium fidelities and ultimately the high fidelity experience that we have. We had to start teaching ourselves how to prototype again. And we now prototype relentlessly. Uh, when I started, and some of you who are at big companies will appreciate this, our ordering system didn't allow us to order Post-its and, and Sharpies. <laughs> that took four months. <laughs> But now we can, and all of a sudden, the culture is now going overboard on this. One of the things I found in my entire career is that ideas are pretty much worthless. They are a dime a dozen. A lot of people think innovation is ideating. Ideas are easy. Alignment, that's hard. 
So we reached back actually into the military with some stuff that I've been working on since the 1990s to come up with a notion of how we communicate to large teams what their goal is, what the key results are in an OKR sense, without impacting the tactical implementation work that they're actually empowered to go do. We call these things hills. Now, to give you an example of one of the greatest hills ever created, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to Earth. There is not a person who was involved in that that didn't understand the goal. And yet, that was something that took seven years, arguably 40 or 50 prototypes through Mercury and Gemini and Apollo before we were able to actually achieve that. Tens of thousands of people. In hills, we actually create hills for our uh, product teams. Hills last, uh, set out objectives, user-centered objectives that should be able to be achieved in a three to six month time frame. And all of the deliveries in that time frame should ultimately result in the taking of that hill. It's all about communicating intention, not process. We have notions of how we communicate inside of our, inside of our, our company as well as with our clients about the future. Because in a business sense, there are dependencies. We do have to communicate some future. We're building today's cupcake. There's a birthday cake out there. And then there's a wedding cake. And these are the levels of blurriness of those artifacts. And so now with our clients, when we talk about roadmaps, we're talking about birthday cakes and wedding cakes. And they kind of understand it's out there. There's different levels of fidelity of your understanding of what you're actually going to, because you may actually change course when you get the feedback, when the net promoter scores come back, or whatever happens. But it's a, it's a very useful way for us to start approaching that. I'll finish with this, with places. This is the complex in Austin, Texas that I was moved to after my company was bought. We had nice offices. They weren't super cool offices, but they were a lot better than this. This was that architecture that you saw earlier. Goldfinger built this. I'm pretty sure, I didn't know that, but I'm sure, that's, I see Goldfinger's hands all over it. I was actually moved right there. It was to the eighth floor of building 903. We called it the insane asylum when I went there. Uh, when we decided to, to do this program and change the culture of IBM, which is ultimately what this program is about, although it is led from a design-centered perspective. We decided that we were under a lot of pressure, a couple of us, to actually go build a cool space, go get an innovation center, show them IBM's cool again. You know, you wear jeans, you can go get something with bricks in it. <laughs> and I was actually always worried about those other 369,000 people, because the more we made this an other, the more they would continue to have an excuse not to be a part of it. And so we decided to build our first studio, and in fact, all of our studios on existing IBM campuses to show the campus how, radical, how radically we could transform even this. This is the offices that I walked in. They were individual offices. They were sure awesome. They were awesome for getting individual work done, but that's not a very collaborative space. And so that was our design point. We were changing a culture. And so we demolished that space, that floor of that building that I was moved to was the first floor of what is now our largest flagship studio, 50,000 square foot software design studio with 450 practicing designers in it today. 
That represents about a third of our studios around the world. And we built something very, very different and very, very special. We actually believe that the noisier and the louder, the better. Again, it was a design point for us because we had to break a certain cultural anti-pattern that we were breaking. We're teaming up with people from around the world. These are people communicating with our Shanghai studio. We had to let people know that it was OK to be funny and irreverent. And we now have 30 design studios around the world. And more importantly, we use the physical language of our design studios. And we have over 150 capital projects changing the way all developers and all development is done at IBM. And it will culminate this February when our chairman, Jenny Rometty, who has moved out of the second floor in Armonk, we gutted Armonk. And we, are, we created the executive floor in Armonk is a new design studio from IBM. And that's where Jenny and her senior team will actually work and collaborate going forward starting in February. All of this is about creating a sustainable culture of design and design thinking at IBM. It's all based on a simple formula, which is people plus practices plus places equals outcomes. The final chapter of this story is that next year we're beta testing putting net promoter score as uh, another metric in the executive management system for IBM with an intention that in somewhere around 2018 or 2019, it will actually be formalized into the management system of IBM, meaning it's what you get paid based on. That ultimately is one of the final things that I think will be important to making this a, a sustainable set of changes so that the business always values our users' experiences and that vision that Jenny laid out in 2012 of creating a great, sustainable, wonderful client experience across all of IBM will come to fruition. Thank you all very much for your time.